0: Providing real solutions for real business challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplug, season four. Conversations with professionals across the country, exploring business topics and empowering personal growth in real estate, financial services, and the title insurance industry. (music) Continuing Chuck's conversation with former Fed Housing Commissioner and MBA CEO, Dave Stevens.
1: And talking about technology, and uh, I was out of the NBA Tech Show here uh, last week, and uh, let's just say yeah, artificial intelligence was a very busy topic. Chat GPT about how to use those services. Where do you think that goes? I mean, there were some speakers who talked about, well, AI is especially good if you're converting, say, mundane services and things that people really don't want to do. That may be their job to do it, but it's sort of a tedious sort of practice. But where do you think that goes? And, of course, there's a lot of discussion uh, by our good friend, uh, Director Chopra, about uh, his concerns about AI
2: uh, having
1: built-in prejudices about things.
2: Director Chopra is concerned about AI having built-in prejudices, and he's also concerned about humans having built-in prejudices. So (laughs) I don't know which one he hates worse. it is interesting. I'm having a dialogue with a well-known civil rights advocate in the housing sector right now as we speak about what FHFA did in their loan level price adjustment grids and what the problems are of housing. And she was making the point that the problem with the way the GSEs underwrite loans right now is that they're discriminatory by just the way they put the rules in their decision engine. And so technology can cause adverse outcomes even though it's trying to set an unbiased rules-based methodology around what it does. But for example, when I was FHA commissioner, I put a FICO floor in. I'm the guy who put the FICO floor in at 680, below which you need a 10% down payment. And I was really pressured to put a 580 is the floor, at which point you need a 10% down payment. I was pressured to put a 620 floor in by industry. MBA and a lot of major lenders wanted me to put a 620 FICO floor in. But I ended up doing the analysis of credit scores, FICO, unfortunately, that was the engine they used at the time. I did a distribution analysis of who has FICO's between 580 and 620 if I were to put the floor in at 620. And the distribution became heavily populated with African-Americans and Hispanics. And it wasn't because that's bad credit necessarily. There's a whole bunch of reasons why credit scores can be low. One, you come from, your parents came from a South American country or Mexico. They didn't trust the banking system. They never believed in getting bank accounts or credit cards because they thought they would get ripped off based on the economies they came from. They pass that on to their kids and their kids just didn't establish enough credit to get a history and get that kind of score similar to the African-American community that just wasn't educated in financial literacy necessarily. I'm not saying that as a generality. I'm just saying that based on means and medians that we would look at. But nevertheless, it was a much higher concentration. And so had we set the model, the underwriting models, that below 620, you needed a bigger down payment because default risk becomes X below that, we would have ended up blocking out a lot of opportunity that would have impacted minorities adversely. So that's a problem with algorithms. That being said, I think artificial intelligence can do tons for us in our business. I always chuckled at New Jersey and New York, parts of Jersey and New York and Massachusetts and how title searches are done by attorney's offices and lawyers. And I was like, this can be a fully automated process. It doesn't need, I don't believe, that extra cost. Please don't yell at me, guys. I'm not in the business per se anymore. So if you're one of those people, but it is how they operate and, uh, Let's just talk about sort of an example of where AI could really help. Let's take something, um, income verification. We still have processors who have to get W-2s, tax returns, year-to-date pay stubs to verify a person's income. And that borrower has to assemble all this paperwork. I bought 14 homes in my lifetime and I've refinanced a bunch of them along the way. It's a lot of mortgages. I got to take my stuff to my guy I have my loan officer, we meet at Starbucks in Washington, D.C., I just give it to him. And then he takes it and he says, I'll get it back to you, and then he comes up with all the analysis. But it's a lot of ridiculous work, and there's no reason why we can't access all that information for the most part fully electronically through payroll systems like ADP and others, through the IRS database. And I once did an MOU when I was with the Mortgage Bankers Association with the head of the IRS. We did a big announcement over at IRS headquarters on this exact subject. It went nowhere because it's a federal bureaucracy and the motivation was just not to help that much, I don't think. But this is really where we need to end up. We could eliminate so much brain damage to manufacture a mortgage and maybe cut down on the overhead for a lender because it could reduce the need for X amount of processors on a macro scale if all of that income stuff I didn't have to even check on. And you can do that through a lot of other activities, right? It's. I truly believe that the appraisal process is going to get far more automated than anybody sees it today through the normal kind of AVM processes in terms of where they are today. So yeah, I mean, there's so much opportunity, but I do think there needs to be a watchful eye on how it's done to make sure it's not discriminatory. So if you're going to automate the appraisal process, you need to be careful about the comps that are selected, the condition questions, all of these things that could isolate certain communities that may be predominated with lower income families unless that those comparables and that information is relevant. And so these are the kind of risks we have to think about. So I, I get Chopra's concern, but he doesn't like human intervention in the appraisal process in particular. And he worries about AI on the other side. I, I think ultimately technology is far less discriminatory if you can get the rules right.
1: Some of the things that you're discussing, especially fair housing, and, and just to take a step towards that, you know, of housing affordability is a huge issue in this country. It is discussed, it is discussed, it has become a policy concern from the Biden White House. Uh, I think actually both parties. And uh, where do you see this going as far as improvement affordability? Because as you pointed out earlier, we don't really have enough houses. Um, and that creates a problem as far as the pricing on houses, uh, the amount of houses yeah. that are available that are listed. Do you see affordability becoming easier for more people? And and again, both private and public sectors, sometimes in conjunction, are moving forward on programs. You know, we've seen a lot of programs, I mean, you and I have because... Well, for example, you know, Dodd-Frank, as I've often said, is like, well, most of the things that Dodd-Frank made illegal had already been put out of business. So it was it was like, well, you've closed the barn door, but the horses have been gone for a long time here. Do you think there's going to be some success in this as far as affordability? And do you think that there's, you know, the, the path that generally the country is moving down, whether private, public or, or can join, Is this sort of the
2: right way to go, do you think? Well, I think the only way to get there is through public-private partnerships, I'll give you my view, and it's not very um, positive on this administration and others. I don't think the Trump administration was any better by any stretch. But the Biden team, and it's not Biden, I think the whole administration talks a big game about wanting to focus on getting more minorities into homeownership. And to their credit, they did try a few things. You're not aware of this probably, but in the infrastructure bill, originally it was much bigger, but it couldn't get passed because there had been so much Spending through the CARES Act and everything during COVID, they just couldn't get a big infrastructure bill through. But in it, originally, was a significant down payment assistance program, uh, literally would have provided up to $20,000 in cash for first-time homebuyers defined as first in their generation of their family's history to be a homeowner. It was really meant to get to particularly African-Americans and Hispanics whose parents or grandparents probably weren't homeowners, and to give them an opportunity to get in by getting this down payment, because down payment is clearly identified as the biggest barrier to entry for homeownership, aside from supply and interest rates, student loan debt, and all the other things we have to worry about. But it's a big barrier. It never got in the final bill. So it's not, I don't want to discredit all of their efforts. But to be clear, a lot of the weight is on Secretary Fudge. You know, the president's cabinet has a lot of different cabinet members, one of which is the, the HUD secretary. Decades ago, as you remember, the HUD secretary was responsible for regulating Fannie and Freddie. That was part of HUD's job. There was no FHFA. The Office of Ofeo was was under HUD, under the HUD secretary. They regulated both Fannie and Freddie as well as the federal home loan banks. The Office of Regulatory Affairs, which is now part of CFPB, But CFPB back then didn't exist. It was all under HUD. My point being that the HUD secretary was pretty powerful back then. They literally had the authority over all of the federal funding programs from FHA, Ginnie Mae, and the GSEs and the federal home loan banks under their authority. Today, they have very little, right? The GSEs are regulated by FHFA. The CFPB makes all the rules around lending. You have the VA, which has grown dramatically, and then you got the USDA, which is on some separate agency doing rural lending, which sometimes it's not so rural, but nevertheless. And then you got HUD secretary who has FHA. That's it. Certainly has Ginnie Mae, but doesn't get very involved in that. And then has community block development grants and whatever's left of Section Eight, which is never fully funded anyway. And so my concern is this: where's the priority? Like. If we all know that we're in a housing crisis, which I believe we're in, we have a shortage of units, why are we allowing housing policy to be nickel and dime, nipped around the corners, around the edges by all these different regulators doing their little thing to try to improve housing? Fudge just doesn't have the power. and this It's not her fault. The role of the HUD Secretary, I, I, I've asked openly, why do we even keep it as a cabinet role anymore? Because it It doesn't have the authority it should have. You know, the president has the treasury secretary reporting to him. Janet Yellen has extraordinary power. The head of Homeland Security, uh, the head of the Department of State. I mean, these are real jobs. The HUD secretary, it's like HUD housing does not count. And so who sets the priorities around housing? You could talk all you want about wanting to increase housing supply, which Secretary Fudge does talk about in her speeches. She has no ability to do any of this. She can't even drive policy to try to create a national program to come up with a public-private partnership to create X number of hundreds of thousands of units in X communities across the country. She doesn't have that authority or power to do so. So I've argued for a different structure, which I'm not gonna drag you down that rabbit hole on, but one with much more authority. So we have Sandra Thompson who runs the FHFA, She's tinkering with LLPA grids, uh, DTI ratios, which all of anybody who's in lending know what happened. That's not gonna work. It didn't do anything to change outcomes. And then Julia Gordon drops MIPs by a little bit, which helped. It actually eradicated anything Sandra was trying to do with LLPA prices. But you see what I mean? There's FHFAs doing their thing. FHA is doing their thing. Oh, don't forget the CFPB is weighing in and modifying rules, et cetera. The GSEs are setting their own capital requirements and saying we're going to buy this or that or the other thing. I mean, it really is pretty alarming to me when Mark Zandi, the chief economist from Moody's, just recently gave a presentation showing that America's short 1.6 million housing units right now needed at this moment to meet rental and purchase demand in this country. And nothing's being done about it. And why, in my view because we don't have a focus at the most senior leadership levels in the White House. I never hear the president talk about it. I'll give you one last point. I'm sorry, Chuck, to go on this soapbox. They recently, when Julia Gordon made the announcement around the drop in, she's the FHA commissioner, around the drop in the FHA premium and my mortgage insurance premium, she did it at a speech in Maryland that was all around housing. So there was a lot of stuff talking about housing, the need for housing. The vice president went, Kamala Harris, but that's where I hate to say it. That's where you you lower the stature of a really important topic. And when this is this industry we all share together, whether you're in settlement services, you're a title company, uh, you're an appraiser, you're an attorney, you're a mortgage person. I don't care where you sit in this uh, food chain. That's forty percent of the GDP. It's a massive amount of this economy, and we give it zero. Zero attention. And to your point, you were saying Republicans and Democrats talk about it. There hasn't been one bill in the Senate Banking Committee introduced at all on this subject. Not one in the last five years, zero. So uh, either from Democratic or Republican leadership. And the House Financial Services Committee, which is the other one that should be doing it on the House side, it went from you know Maxine Waters to our Republican friend from North Carolina, who's a great guy, Nothing is being done to focus on housing and the housing shortage. So, you know, I know we're frustrated with Congress, rightfully so. Someone's got to instigate the effort to create change here. And that just ain't happening. And I at some point our industry's got to get fed up and demand it. But I I, I think we just sit here idly saying, why aren't they building more housing units? Who I don't know who they is. The they really starts with making it a priority for the president of the United States where he talks about it. We don't even get a line in the State of the Union. The last State of the Union didn't mention housing. And so, you know, it's crazy as uh, as you think about where we are with something that's so important to the U.S. economy. And even, I hate to say it, the Federal Reserve doesn't get it. What they've done to slow the economy, they will have overcorrected on rates before it's done. They almost collapsed a major part of the banking system, not SVB alone, and the one in New York and the other one. But I don't know if you heard, there were hundreds of community banks that are also upside down on basis risk, we call interest rate risk, uh, where they lent long and their deposit rates were rising. So the cost of funds was getting higher than what they were earning. That's how you get savings loans and put them out of business. And that's all done by the Fed. And so you know we have a complete lack of like foresight and someone in charge to work together and say, hey, guys, this is where the focus should be. Forget LLPAs. We don't care about that. That doesn't matter. We need to focus on this. And I literally this debate I'm having with this head of a, a fair housing agency in Washington literally right now, she says the most important thing we need to do is enforce the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Act at HUD. So her way of getting at people to do more loans is the stick, right? So, and I think we need to think about incentives versus enforcement in terms of how you get more housing built in this country. And I think enforcement is not going to get you there. I think we really need leadership and we need a balanced way to create structural incentives like we did once upon a time with low-income housing tax credits to get more homes built.
1: Well, I can't agree with you more. And by the way, I will nominate you for housing czar. Uh, I think that's... uh, That's a position we need because you understand all the facets of it as to how it comes in, including our friends over at the Home Builders and the frustrations they have. But uh, yeah, under the topic of uh, an optimist as a guy without much experience, I served on a a committee, a Blue Ribbon Committee for the mayor of Cincinnati during the Clinton administration. Because Cincinnati at that time, we were still one of the top 25 MSAs. We aren't anymore. But um, we had a 64% home ownership rate. In the city of Cincinnati. And today, a mere 30 years later, we have gotten that all the way up to a 65% home ownership rate. So we're really knocking them out of the park here with all the efforts. It's better than the war on drugs, but um, uh, (laughs) perhaps not much. In our last few minutes here, if I can sort of switch topics, commercial. What do you see for the commercial mortgage industry here through 2023? Uh, we had a again record year or close to record year last year in commercial origination. Again, uh, as you mentioned, Michael Frantoni, Michael said uh, when I saw him last week that uh, they were looking at probably 100 billion in origination in the first quarter in commercial and what it was 960 or something billion for the year last year. Uh, he also pointed out uh, about 700 billion in um, commercial uh, loans that are either maturing or adjusting this year. What do you think that all means to the commercial market?
2: Trouble. I think it means all my commercial mortgage companies please don't yell at me, but I you know I think we have cycles in the marketplace. I was you know I was surprised to see JP Morgan announcement today that they're now requiring all their executive team to come back to work five days a week in office, which is unfortunately something that companies are gonna grapple with because if you're not gonna fill office space in urban markets, you're gonna have a bunch of empty office space and intentionally decide to downsize. So there's a supply demand gap there that we have to figure out what, how this is gonna ultimately level out as people get used to a new reality in this sort of post COVID world. The bigger issue is the 700 billion. You know, We have a lot of commercial loans that were originated on shorter term loans, let's say five, seven, 10 year instruments that are coming due and they have to be rewritten. And the problem is that interest rates are significantly higher right now. And so that's going to change the entire debt service coverage ratio in terms of how you underwrite a commercial project. You know, in the residential space, you underwrite the borrower based on their debt-to-income ratio? Do they make enough income to cover the mortgage payment? In the commercial space, you look at the entire building and look at... And by the way, you you praise the property in the residential space based on its relative value versus other comparable homes in the market. In the commercial space, you set the value, frankly, based on its cash flow. So you take total income, you take out for maintenance, replacement costs and reserve and management. And then you come up with a debt service cover ratio above that to make sure you have a little cushion and then you set a loan, a maximum loan amount that you're going to lend against that property. That's going to be a lot harder with rates up significantly from where they were when some of these loans were created a few years ago. So, you know, I think this is going to put a lot of pressure on commercial owners in terms of how they're going to be able to offset that, you know, impact to sort of their cap cost on a commercial project. We have to see where rates go here and what kind of flexibility the banks are going to provide to the lending market overall. There is a lot of private capital in the commercial market, life insurance companies. There's a commercial mortgage-backed securities market that's private labeled. There's bank portfolios. They will have more flexibility to try to provide financing here, but we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. I I do think we're probably headed to a little bit of a bubble on the commercial side because I don't know how you return completely to a full occupancy Monday through Friday, nine to five workforce. And so in those circumstances, I'm not sure what that means for the rest of the commercial space. And I'll just expand with slight bit. You know, I'm a New York City kid. I was born in Manhattan and I'm heading up there in a couple of weeks again, as I go all the time. And uh, the place I stay, it's not a hotel, it's a place that I have a friend, and, you know, on the main floor, there's a deli, who I've known the owner of that deli for decades, and there's a dry cleaner. And, you know, these are the guys who are suffering. I mean, they're not, you know, they they almost failed and it still has not come back anywhere near what it was pre-COVID. That's part of that commercial space. And so, you know, we've got a bit of a re-engineering that needs to be thought about in terms of how we do commercial in uh, particularly in urban markets. But it's a growing population, new businesses open, there are new markets that are growing, particularly second tier markets. So, you know, where Washington DC may not be growing as rapidly, Roanoke, Virginia, or Richmond, you know, these are areas that are showing some growth. So we'll just have to watch how this all shifts as we move forward, but I do think the rewriting of a whole of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars of mortgages that were originated at rates significantly below where we are today, it does create a threat to the financial wherewithal for a certain number of these properties. We'll have to see how it plays out.
1: Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us here today and for sharing your time with us. This has been just a great well, dialogue. I just ask questions. I don't really add much. But yes, again, thank you so much. I'm sure our listeners will find this very beneficial as they begin to plan their business year, the remainder of the year, as to this uh, this changing world we constantly are dealing in. So again, thank you so much uh, for being here today with us. Great to
2: be with you, Chuck. Have a great day.
1: Thank you. And for all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us uh, here at FNF Unplugged. And I hope you have uh, a great day and a great rest of your week.
0: If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies, all rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or any endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed in this podcast.